Oh God, you are the story. You are the glory. The whole earth is full of your glory. In a world that is topsy-turvy, in a world that rumbles and trembles with the tread of an approaching God, we want to clearly see what is truth. Open our minds, illumine our hearts, and may the truth of Christ indeed set us free. We pray in His name. Amen. I hold here in my hands an email letter from Peter Lalonde, the executive producer of the Left Behind movie. The letter is dated just a few days ago, this very week. It was mass mailed to Christians across the land. The reason I have the letter is my friend Carolyn Strzokowski has some Southern Baptist friends down in Florida. They sent the letter to her a few days ago, and now I'm going to share it with you. And you know how email letters have a subject before they get into the salutation. Subject, a chance to reach millions of souls. Let me read this. Hi, my name is Peter Lalonde and I am the executive producer of the Left Behind movie. I wanted to drop you a quick note to see if you and your church might be able to utilize the movie's theatrical release on February 2 as one of your soul-winning outreach programs. Our goal to finish number one at the box office is much too big a goal for us to even dream about achieving on our own. But my brother Paul and I are convinced that it is easily achievable by the whole body of Christ. And not only do we believe that this movie is a great soul-winning tool, we also believe that it is, and now it's in big caps, a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to have an enormous impact on the entire entertainment industry. You see, when we released the, the movie on video first... Obviously a very unusual strategy, he writes. We achieved our goal by having the video debut as number one in North America, placing ahead of such Hollywood giants as Toy Story 2 and the X-Men. Obviously, there is not one studio executive who is not trying to figure out how we did it. Now, if we can do the same thing with a theatrical release, we will in one fell swoop Pave the way for countless other Christian films, other aspiring Christian filmmakers, and for Christians who work within the studio system. In the same way that Star Wars opened the doors for sci-fi films and Die Hard showed that action films could be successful, we have a golden opportunity to show Hollywood that Christian films can also be box office winners. One more sentence. And if we do that, we can clearly have an impact that goes far beyond this one film. End quote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the film will be really, it isn't even out yet, just a few hours away, but the, because of the left behind books, the impact has already been made. I flew out this week to San Diego to meet with my uh, colleagues, pastor colleagues on university and campus, uh, university and college uh, campuses, pastors, to, to, to a man and a woman. It's being talked about everywhere. Young adults everywhere. Left behind. The word is out. We, in fact, we did some uh, book browsing. So we went to uh, Dalton's bookstore. There it is. Big displays. I stopped at every airport bookstore. It's a habit I have anyway. But there, in every airport, there are the books. Imagine my surprise to learn that not only do they have a series for adults, they have now come out with a left behind series for kids. Where the heroes of the story are youngsters who are left behind when Jesus comes secretly, and they now become the focal point of the drama, volume after volume after volume. 
How did executive producer Peter Lalonde put it? Our goal is to finish number one at the box office. And if we do that, we can clearly have an impact that goes far beyond this one film. It is because of that impact, as he puts it, that goes far beyond this one film that I happen to be concerned today. And because of that concern, we have begun this radio and television experience where we have gone to look at what left behind, left behind. Now look, folks, I, I want to say this right here at the outset, once again, good news. It didn't leave everything behind. In fact, as we discovered in part one of our series, and by the way, if you're watching on television right now and you weren't a part of part one, you can go to our, uh, our website. This is the Pioneer Memorial Church, pmchurch.org.org. Go to that website. You'll find the entire left behind, uh, what left behind, left behind series there for you. But as we noted in part one, hey, wait a minute, the very good news that Jesus is coming soon, that didn't get left behind. I happen to believe that news, don't you? That's why I call myself an Adventist. Who is an Adventist? An Adventist is one who believes and lives with that shining, glowing hope that Christ is soon to come. Yo, I believe in that. Uh, it, it, it as well may be a bit low-keyed in the books, but what else didn't get uh, left behind is the... Gospel presentation, the good news that Jesus is Savior. It's there in the books. Although, unfortunately, from my own humble perspective, that gospel presentation is nearly non-existent in the video movie presentation. And I, I can understand now, I got the letter from him, I understand. Obviously wishing to penetrate Hollywood's biases. Let's just kind of keep this low, because Hollywood isn't only Christian. In fact, I, you know, it, it, it was so subliminal, I may have missed it, but I didn't hear the name of Jesus mentioned once. The most overt Christianity is played around a cross, a cross on a church altar, which is brought, the director brings it to the screen several times. But with a book series, no question, the books have not left behind the good news that Jesus the Savior is coming soon. However, and this is a very big however, left behind has left behind something very significant. In fact, we noted it in part two, our presentation last week. What is left behind, left behind? The most urgent Truth of all. Now, what is that truth? Let's review. Some of you weren't here last week. Some of you weren't watching on television last week. Let's review that very quickly. In fact, to do that here, and by the way, on our website, you'll be able to get the same study guide. To do that here in your bulletin today is, is a new study guide. I hope you're collecting these. A new study guide. You say, oh, man, are you serious? Do I, are we going to have to take notes again? No, you don't have to take a note. You just sit here, don't have to write a thing down. Although, as long as we're reading letters, let me read this one that came to me just yesterday. I got it. Dear Pastor Dwight, one of you wrote this. Last weekend when you launched the Left Behind series, you talked about sharing with co-workers, friends, neighbors, etc. when they would come with questions. Well, having a job in the secular world, this writer puts it, this really struck me. I wonder what I would say if someone approached me with questions, never realizing that you were already giving me the answers before the questions were even asked. On Monday, I received a referral to see a client. This client has been the object of this medical professional's uh, focus on several occasions. And so I spent time with the client on Tuesday, Wednesday, and again on Friday. Friday, as I was finishing, getting my coat on and preparing to leave, she said, Hey, do you know anything about this Left Behind movie that's coming out? I immediately took off my coat, sat back down and said, let us talk. Thank you for helping prepare me with the answers to share. I'm looking forward to studying with her in the weeks ahead. Hey, I wasn't just bumping my gums. People are going to ask you, hey, 
It came out the movie this week. What do you believe? What is First Peter chapter three? We've been pardon me for going back to it for the third time, but it says there always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Can you tell somebody why you have the hope of Jesus soon coming? So that's why we have the study guide. Now let's just fill out the the. Uh, First four lines on the study guide that will set us all up. And those of you who are watching on television or who are here today for the first time, you'll get caught up right quickly. Number one. See, let's let, let's be clear about this. It says let's be clear. Number one, Jesus is coming. What word would you put there? You got it right. Put in the word soon. Jesus is coming soon. Right in the word soon. Those of you watching on television, that word is uh, is highlighted for you. Number two. See, this is simple. Number two, Jesus is not coming, what? Secretly. Good for you. You were here last week. I'm glad. Number two, Jesus is not coming secretly. The Bible says it will be the most explosive and visible event in the history of the human race. The Super Bowl will be seen by one billion people in a few hours, but the second coming will be seen by six billion. There you go, NFL. Try to top that. All right. All right. Number one, Jesus is coming soon. Number two, Jesus is not coming secretly because number three, there is no third right in the word third. There's no third coming. The Bible says not nary a word about another coming. There are only two comings once to Bethlehem and twice to earth in the clouds of glory because there is no third coming. Number four, which means there is no second Chance, that's it. There is no second chance. Appreciate the choir. They're into that study guide with us. There is no second chance after Jesus comes the second time. When He comes, that is it. Left behind is fatally flawed by teaching that there is a second chance. You say, oh, hey, hey, hey wait a minute, Dwight. Well, you know, I, I've read these books and uh, maybe I'll see the, the video or what have you. But, uh, you know, I keep hearing this. They, they say, look, there'll be seven more years after Jesus comes secretly and whisks his faithful followers away. It will be a seven year tr tribulation. Where do they get that? Where do they come up with that number? Well, I, I, I need to be right up front here at the beginning. There's been a terrible misunderstanding. I want to show you where they get it. It's not there, but I want to show you where they get it. Daniel. I'll put it on the screen because we're going to get back to Daniel. You can open your Bible at that point. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. You see, it, will come, it comes as a stunning surprise to most evangelical Christians to discover that what in fact they were taught did not come from the Bible at all. It came instead from Rome. Now I say, oh boy, we're going to get into history. Let me give you a little history lesson. I tell you, this is just fascinating. So, put on your seatbelts and let, let's, let's fly through this. Back in 1590, how many years ago would that be? 1590. Come on, mathematicians. What is that, 411? Yeah. Back in 1590, a Spanish priest named Francisco Ribera, let's put his picture on the screen, a Jesuit scholar came out with a brand new commentary. There's a cover of the commentary inside the title sheet. He'd been working on this commentary for years. Why did Ribera come out with a brand new commentary on the book of Revelation? Well, let me share this with you. You see, Rome desperately needed a new method of Bible interpretation to turn back the withering challenge of something new called Protestantism. For the last 70 years, 1590 minus 70 gets you back to, what, uh, 1520. 
reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and before them John Wycliffe and John Huss, to a man, all of them from their careful Bible study and prophetic study, had determined that Rome was the Antichrist power predicted in Daniel and Revelation. And the more the reformers thundered about that, the more difficult and by the way, I can certainly appreciate this and I think you can too. The more precarious became Rome's position and perception in the public domain. It's that Rome said, we got to do something. And so in the middle of the 1500s, they convened a council called the Council of Trent. And they're looking for new methodologies to turn aside the, these debilitating challenges from these Protestant reformers. Which is what led Francisco Ribera to come out in 1590 with his commentary on Revelation. Now, take your study guide, because what he did was he came up with a whole new method of Bible interpretation in the blank right, at, right after Ribera's name. Would you put the word, we'll put it on the screen for you, futurism. It is a method of Bible interpretation right in the word futurism. Just like the word sounds, it's all about the future. Now, now what is futurism? Ribera took all of Revelation's prophecies, except for a few at the beginning, and he shoved them all down to the end of time and said, Aha! Revelation's about the future. It's not about the present. It's all about the end. In the end, the Antichrist will come. There'll be a seven-year period. Look out for the end. Revelation is not about today. Well, you see, the Protestant reformers were all saying, Hey, wait a minute. Revelation is about today, and the Antichrist is alive and well today. Whew! A very neat and tidy trick. Maneuver. It worked. Because subsequent Roman scholars could say, hey, hey, stop this nonsense. That's not today. It's in the future. And it took the heat off, which is precisely why the method of interpretation was designed in the first place. Blunted the future text. You know what, though? What is so incredible? Get this. What Rome intended to be a weapon to use against Protestantism in three centuries, the Protestants themselves will embrace that weapon and teach futurism. I mean, this is just... Is, truth is stranger than fiction in this case. Wow. Less than 300 years from Ribera, futurism would find a home in the midst of fundamentalist Christians thanks to an Irish... Anglican lawyer turned preacher named John Nelson Darby. 1800 to 18. You see his picture on the screen. 1800 to 82. He was the creative genius behind Protestantism's new brand of futurism. And let's put that word in here on your study guide. We'll put it on the screen. It's a long one. It'll take you three minutes to write the word. Dispensationalism. Oh, I bet you can't get that down in 30 seconds. Look at that. Dispensational, leave it on the screen, please. Dispensationalism. What is dispensationalism? It's the same. It's the same. Although Darby added a new twist to futurism. Because it was John Darby who, who came up with the creative concept that Jesus would come secretly, way down here at the end, just before the seven years begin, Jesus would come secretly, secret rapture, and whisk his followers away. And as soon as the Christians are gone, Darby said, that's when the Antichrist asserts his power. He goes to Jerusalem. He rebuilds the temple. There are sacrifices there. But in the middle of that seven-year period, he stops those sacrifices. The earth is thrown into terrible chaos. Christ comes at the end of the seven years to destroy the Antichrist and set up his millennial kingdom on earth. That's it. That's it. No more history. That's it. Oh, by the way, one more line. A fellow, a follower of Darby's named Cyrus Schofield came along 
He said, I love these notes. He said, let me take your, your lecture notes and I'm going to put them in a Bible. And today it's the best selling Bible of any edition in the world. It's called the Schofield Bible. It's the Bible of dispensationalism. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the left behind books and the left behind movie all got their inspiration from an Irish preacher and a Jesuit priest. So, oh, come on, Dwight, isn't it in the Bible? Come on, it's got to be in the Bible. Oh, no, it is not. In fact, let me show you what is in the Bible, and I'll let you decide. You go ahead and make your decision, but let's look at the primary evidence together. Open your Bible now to that book, that ancient prophecy called Daniel, to the very chapter, the very prophecy that Rebera and Darby dissected. Daniel chapter 9, please. A few minutes we have left. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. By the way, this prophecy, the brilliant English scientist named Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton said, hey, it convinced him, by the way, that, that the scripture of the veracity, he, he was convinced of the veracity, the truthfulness of the scriptures. <laughs> Some people have called what you are about to read the crown jewel of the Old Testament. We're calling it the greatest truth of all. Daniel chapter 9. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 1. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, that would be 538 B.C. around then. He's of the lineage, Darius was, of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. We're going to be reading from the New King James Version here. Daniel said, hey, look, I suddenly realized when I was going through the prophets one day, I came across Jeremiah and... Oh, I said, I can't believe this. God made a promise that after 70 years, he would take my people back to Jerusalem out of captivity. Daniel said, look, I did the arithmetic. I was taken captive in 605 B.C. when Jerusalem was first sacked by Nebuchadnezzar. I do the arithmetic. And it is now 68 years. In two years, Daniel writes, I suddenly was aware our deliverance is to come. But as I look at the headlines on the Babylonian times, there is no word about God doing a single thing. And my heart is broken. And so, verse 3, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Jacques Ducan, a professor of Hebrew here at our theological seminary on this campus, has shared with me his intriguing new book, Secrets of Daniel. And in this book, he notes that this prayer, one of the shining prayers of all human literature, this prayer actually in the book of Daniel is the seventh prayer in the book. It's the, it's the longest prayer. But all through the book, Daniel has avoided using the very holy name of God, Yahweh. Even today, Jews don't use the word Yahweh. They say Adonai. They, they put the word Lord instead. But now... After all of these chapters, now in chapter 9, seven times the name Yahweh appears. And Daniel says, I'm, I'm, into, I'm into ashes and fasting and sackcloth. Three symbols, Dr. Dukan writes, three symbols of the Hebrew penitent in death. Because when you are dead, cessation of all digestion. No more eating. When you are dead, you have turned to ashes. When, per, when you're mourning for the dead, you are in sackcloth. Hebrew penitents go to that form. And mourning, as it were, death. 
Daniel prays. And I'm telling you, this, this is an incredible prayer. We don't have time to go through the prayer. You want to go this afternoon and read one of the most moving prayers you'll ever read? Read this through. Let's just start the prayer in verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord. There it is. I prayed, I prayed to the Lord my God. And I made confession. And I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. We, verse 5, we have sinned. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? Daniel is the only man in... Well, except for Enoch. Daniel is the only man in the Old Testament. We have no word and we have the longest life of a righteous man. Not a single word about a single... Not a solitary sin. If anybody could have prayed the prayer, say, Oh, God, bless my people. Be with those people who have sinned. I want to say to the spiritual leaders here, we have some spiritual leaders on this campus. I don't hear any of this talk about, oh God, bless, be, be aware of what they are doing. Oh God, you know this problem we have over there in the camp, in that corner of the campus? You know that problem over here? Oh God, do something because they are sinning. If you are a spiritual leader and God has called you to intercede on behalf of this campus, then my friend, I want to tell you something. You identify with that fallenness. You're a part of the problem and you plead to be a part of the solution. You say, we got a problem over there. You've got a problem. If you're a leader, you have the problem. Bear the problem. Daniel has no reason to say, I have sinned. He's perfect life, essentially. Oh, no. He says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. Verse 5. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. I'm flying, out from, flying back from San Diego this week, and I'm meditating on Daniel chapter 9, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a powerful prayer for a community of faith to be praying in the third millennium. We have not heeded the voice of your prophets. Your prophets spoke to... What, what does it say here, our leaders? Our kings, our princes, our fathers. We no longer listen to the prophets. Oh, God, we have sinned and fallen short. Well, we could pray the same prayer today now, couldn't we? We no longer listen to the prophets. It's a moving, moving prayer. We don't have time for it. And so I want to go to the last, the last two sentences of the prayer. Verse 18, look at this. Oh, my God... Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. We don't have any, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. God, do something. You ever go to God that way? You ever go to your knees and just plead with God to do something, intervene in your life? You know what, my friend? Never is that pray, prayer prayed, but that the God of the universe does not hear and an answer is set immediately. We don't always know the answer. We don't always recognize the answer, but the answer comes in the same breath that you prayed. That's what happens right here. Like a shaft of light. The highest created being in the universe. How do angels travel that fast? I do not know. He's there. Oh, Daniel says, I want, you, I want you to know how fast God answers prayer. Not always the answer you want. Not always what you can see. But he's answering the prayer just like that. Daniel goes on in verse 20. Now, while, while I was speaking and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, that's back in chapter 8, we know it's the archangel, Gabriel being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering or sacrifice, about 3 in the afternoon, in verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and he said, Oh, Daniel, 
Oh, Daniel, my man, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, when you started praying in that dormitory room, you went to your knees. At that moment, I was told to bring an answer, your angel says. I was told to start working on an answer. Isn't that something? The moment you went to your knees, I was given instructions. Go to that girl. Go to that boy. Right now. He needs you. What a God. Huh? What a God. Talk. I'll think about it in an hour. I'll think about it in a day. The moment you asked, I was sent. Verse 23, let's read it again. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly, what? Beloved. You are greatly, King uh, New International says, you are greatly esteemed. You are greatly beloved. You know what, folks? What God said to his son after his baptism, he said today, God says to everyone who's a friend of His, You know what, my man? You are greatly beloved. My woman, you are greatly beloved. That's just something that God reserves. He says it whenever a heart turns to Him. Oh, we can live with a sense that we are beloved. What a God. Therefore, Gabriel concludes, Consider the matter. Understand. Key word. Dr. Dukan tells us it's about understanding. Understand the matter. All right. Now, Gabriel says, okay, you ready, Daniel? What is about to follow is this spectacular, spectacular prophecy. Mark it in your Bible. This is where the misunderstanding has come. You're going to see it as clear as truth today. Let's begin in verse 24. By the way, like a piece, in a university campus, we know this, like, like a piece of academic doctoral research. Remember when you had to do your, uh, your dissertation? You, at the beginning of the dissertation, you have a thesis statement. You have the preces. You, you have a summation of the entire project at the beginning. Just like that, the entire vision is summarized in verse 24. Read verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. What's going to happen during these seventy weeks? To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay, Daniel, your people, count them, Daniel, 70 weeks. Can you count that, Daniel? 70 weeks. Where have we heard 70 before in this chapter? Oh, we heard it back in verse 2, you're right. Daniel found that promise. In 70 years, your people will go home from exile. Jacques Ducan, listen to this, I never saw this before. There's an intentional play. Seventy years in verse 2 and in verse 24. Actually, in the Hebrew, it doesn't read 70 weeks. It reads weeks 70. Let's put the big X on the screen. Look at the screen. This is called a chiasm. The Greek letter key is the only letter in the shape of an X. So a chiasm is what takes two phrases and makes them parallel. See, the 70s go together and the years and the weeks go together. This is an intentional word from God saying, hey, you want to know about these 70 weeks? Nothing could happen in 70 weeks. Daniel would still be in captivity in 70 weeks. It can't be 70 literal weeks. Ah, something happens here. And the Revised Standard Version came along and said, we're going to translate it 70 weeks of years. The Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, they came along and said, aha, we see, we see the code there, the chiasm. We too will translate it 70 weeks of years. Using the very familiar measuring stick for symbolic time in ancient scripture, one day equals how much? Okay, wait, wait let's, let's get that in the study guide. Pull your study guide out real quick here. That's the, the great symbolic key for under, unlocking time prophecies. In Bible prophecy, a day represents a year. 
And by the way, Jacques de Kuhn notes, and I'm quoting him now, the, the day-year principle of interpretation is probably the most ancient and the most solid principle of the exegesis or interpretation of our passage. By the way, Jacques de Kuhn didn't invent that. That's been around for centuries. Augustine, you ever heard of Augustine? Justin Martyr? Ever heard of Jerome? Ever heard of Martin Luther? They all use the same key. One day equals how much? One day equals a year. So, what do we have here? Let's put it up on the screen. We got 70 weeks, and there's seven days in a week. So, how many, how many uh, days would that be? 490. Or, four, 49 days, or 490 what? 490 years. Okay, let's, let's fly through this. Listen, Daniel Gabriel is saying, you know what? Your people, after captivity of 70 years, are going to go home. But I'm going to tell you something. God is going to multiply their captivity by seven. We'll multiply their captivity by seven. We're going to give them a 490-year probation. Your people, 70 weeks, are determined for your people. Is that on the screen? See? 70 weeks. 70 weeks. Now, Daniel, you know, as soon as Daniel reads, here's that verse. Daniel's saying, okay, well, look, look, look. When does this 70-week period begin? Ah, Gabriel is quick to give the mark that will indicate when the countdown starts. Next verse. Let's read verse 25. Know therefore, this is Gabriel still speaking to his beloved friend Daniel. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the street will be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Let's do the arithmetic, ladies and gentlemen. Let's put it up on the screen. What, what, what is Gabriel saying? Okay, there will be seven weeks plus 62. Do the arithmetic. What do we have? Yeah, you got it. There's 69 weeks. Multiply it by seven. How many days is that? 483 days slash years. The Messiah is going to come 483 years after the final command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Thank God for Bible students everywhere. One of the most certifiable and verifiable dates in all the Old Testament is that final command. We're not going to look it up, but it's in Ezra chapter 7. Those of you who are note takers, I didn't put that on the study guide, but Ezra chapter 7, you want to jot that down. In Ezra 7, the final command comes, and let me give you the date, the fifth month of the seventh year of Artaxerxes. That's late summer, early fall, 457 B.C. Let's do the arithmetic. We want to find out when the Messiah comes. Isn't that right? Messiah comes 483 years later. Let's put it up on the screen. 457 B.C. plus 483 equals, let's put the answer up, 27 A.D. Now, some of you did the quick arithmetic. You say, hey, wait a minute, I got 26. Well, that's because whenever you go from B.C. to A.D., you have to add a year. Nobody was born in the year zero. Hey, when's your birthday? Zero. <laughs> what year were you born? Zero. What is this? There is no year zero. See? So they have to add a year whenever you go from B.C. to A.D. So it's 27. Now, I want you to take your study guide out and turn it over. All right, keep misplacing mine. Here it is. Turn it over. While you're doing that, I want to tell those who are watching on television, you can get this same graph, the same chart that we're about to look at here. We'll put it up on the screen. You can get it by going to another site. 
We just started this site uh, this month. AreYouSearching.com. We'll put it up on the screen for you. AreYouSearching.com. This very study you can get if you click on the spectacular prophecy that Nostradamus missed. Just click on that. You'll get the chart. You'll get it all. But those of us here, let's turn our, our study guide over and you see the chart. In fact, we'll put it up on the screen. There, everybody can see it. You see, starting in 457... Is the, you see the second, the inner little curve is 483 years. You see the little break in the line? It can't be drawn to scale. How could you draw this whole thing to scale? So that represents 483 years. If you start in 457 BC, you end up what date in AD? 27. You see it? 27 AD. Does it work? What happens in 27 AD that has the Messiah beginning his ministry? Ah. Let's go to the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 3. I'll put it on the screen for you. Luke, chapter 3. What happened? Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Let me stop it right there. Do you know what? According to Jewish reckoning, the 15th year of Tiberius is 27 A.D. Whoa, we just ran into that date. What's happening later in Luke, chapter 3? Let's go. Chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were baptized... It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, look at this, the heaven was open, Jesus coming up out of the waters, saw a beautiful baptism a moment ago, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, I love this, this is what God says to his friends, you are my beloved, my beloved son in this case, in you I am well pleased. Would you get it down? Jesus was baptized in 27 A.D. Do you know what? This is, the, this is the only date in the life of Christ, event in the life of Christ that has any date. There's no date for His birth. There is no date for His death. The baptism is the only date that is, only event rather, that is marked by a date. In fact, two of the Gospels, Mark and John, say, hey, forget the birthday story. We want to cut straight. Both Gospels begin with the baptism. Something's important about this baptism. What is important about the baptism? I want you to read now what Jesus began to preach as soon as he was baptized. Mark chapter 1, I want you to see this. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. What was he preaching? And saying, the time... Read it out loud with me. The time is what? The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What time has been fulfilled? What time is Jesus talking about? He's talking about Daniel chapter 9. The Messiah has been anointed. You know what the word Messiah means in both Hebrew and Greek? The word means, let's put it on the screen, the anointed one. The anointed one. Now, another verse that I need you to see right now is Acts chapter 10. I'll put it on the screen. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. I think I have these verses in the study guide, don't I? Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Look at this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? What was he anointed with? He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, come on. Let me have your eyes now. What? What event in Christ's life showed us the Holy Spirit coming onto him, as it were, and anointing him. What event was it? It's his baptism. What date for the baptism? 27 A.D. Can you believe it, ladies and gentlemen? 530 years before Jesus was even born, Gabriel says the Messiah is going to be anointed in 27 A.D. Guess what? The prophecy to a T is so far coming true.
I tell you, it, it, it is just absolutely mind-boggling. It's no wonder the brilliant Isaac Newton said, oh, this has got to be the foundation stone of all Christianity. Wow. Can you believe it? This is in your Bible? Wow. My. Well, d- does the rest work? To a T. Watch this. Let's, go, let's read now verse 26. What's going to happen to the Messiah after he begins his mission, his ministry? Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, plus the seven before the 62, the Messiah shall be cut off. In the Hebrew, Jacques Dukan tells us that is a brutal, bloody word. Cut off. Something tragic is going to happen. The Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Read on, and the people of the prince who is to come, that's not the Jews, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. But now going back to the Messiah, look at verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall one who makes desolate come, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. Go back to that line in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many. For how long? For how long, ladies and gentlemen? One week. How long is a week? How many days in a week? And if a day equals a year, how long would that 70th week be in the prophecy? How long would it be? Seventy years. In the middle of the week. You know what, scholars are absolutely clear that Jesus celebrated four Passovers in his ministry. He is executed on the fourth one. All right? Four Passovers. That's three and a half years. Now, help me out. What is one half of seven? What is one half of seven? Three and a half. Let's do the arithmetic. If the Messiah is anointed in the fall of 27 A.D. by the Holy Spirit as He was at His baptism, and we add three and a half years, mark it down, ladies and gentlemen, with breathtaking precision, in the spring of 31 A.D., something will happen to Him where the Messiah will be cut off and He will stop all sacrifices. What would that something be? Watch this. Jot it down. I, I think it's in your study guide. Those of you watching on television, are you searching.com? You'll be able to get this. Matthew chapter 27. Look at this line from Matthew 27, verse 50. And this is at the moment of death. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice on Calvary's Good Friday cross and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Notice it's not from bottom to top. It is top to bottom. A human could not have done it. It is 60 cubits tall. Torn. Torn in two. What happened when Jesus cried out, it is finished? Do you know what happened? The entire sacrificial system that kept saying, a lamb is coming, a lamb is coming, a Savior, the Messiah will come. It came to an end. And when the Messiah dies as the Lamb of God, it's over. No more sacrifices are now necessary. Whoa! How could it be this precise? The night before His execution... Jesus at the Last Supper speaks words that now suddenly become clear to us because we just read in Daniel 9.27, He will make a covenant with many. 
Watch this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. And as they were eating around the Last Supper table, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples. And He said, Take, eat. This is My body. Then He took the cup and He gave thanks and He gave it to all of them and He said, Drink from it, all of you. Now notice this. For this is My blood of the new what? I'm making a new covenant. This is the new covenant. The old has passed away. The new has come. It's over. It is finished. Messiah, Lamb of God, Savior of the human race has come. I want you to mark it well in your heart and in your brain. My friend, mark it down. The bright and shining truth of Daniel chapter 9 is this. Jesus Christ is precisely what the Scriptures declare Him to be. He is the Messiah and Savior of the world. Take your study guide out there at the bottom of that chart. You'll have more time to examine the chart. Go to areyousearching.com. Slowly, at your own leisure, you can move through this. But write it down at the bottom of your page. The 90th, the ninth chapter of Daniel's prophecy proves that Jesus is the Messiah and Savior. Those are the two words. Messiah and Savior. Please, my friend, understand that Jesus was anointed in baptism at the very hour that the prophetic clock struck. Jesus was crucified at, as the Lamb of God at the very hour that the prophetic clock struck. He died. He rose again just as the ancient Scriptures pe- predicted. There can therefore be... There can be no other Savior. There is no other Savior. There is no other Messiah. You're watching television right now and you say, you know something, Dwight? I know a little bit about Messiah. I know something about the Old Testament. I am a Jew. I want to say to you, my friend, don't take my word for it. Don't take this telecast word for it. You go to Daniel chapter 9 and you ask yourself, in the heart of that book of antiquity, what is the ancient prophet teaching? God, 500 years in advance, only God could have written history before it became history. Only God, this has to be a divine act, only God could have foretold the greatest truth of all. Now I want to say, before I sit down, because I'm getting ready to sit down, I want to say this, I want to say it absolutely solemnly and clearly. That is why, on the basis of Daniel 9, I must conclude... That Ribera and Darby and Schofield and Left Behind have made a fatal mistake in cutting Christ out of that prophecy and substituting the Antichrist instead. Let me show you what Left Behind has done. Take a look at this verse again on the screen. Daniel 9.27 Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week in order to get the heat off of Antichrist being now they came up with a theory that says no, no, no that's going to happen way at the end of time they made the Messiah the Antichrist and in the middle of that week that's when they say oh, he stopped sacrifices in Jerusalem the Antichrist Daniel chapter 9 that 490 year prophecy is absolutely clear Christ is the heart and soul. What terrible logic would allow Him to be switched with the Antichrist? 
The only way Ribera's futurism and Darby's dispensationalism can concoct a seven-year tribulation is that they go to Daniel's 70-week prophecy and they surgically excise, they take off that 70th week and they shoot it down 2,000 years to the end of time and say, that's it! And that's when the Antichrist comes. It's a clever way to get seven years at the end, but it is wrong. Logic requires that the 70th week must follow the 69th week or how can it be called the 70th week? It can't be. It is a clever way to get seven years at the end, but it is wrong. There is not a single hint of a 2,000 year gap anywhere in Daniel 9. It's a clever way to get seven years at the end, but I'm telling you, it is wrong. Daniel 9.27 says absolutely nothing about a seven-year period of tribulation and even less than nothing about an Antichrist at the end. It's a clever way to get the Antichrist at the end, but it is wrong. By removing the only time prophecy in all of Scripture that identifies Jesus of Nazareth as the divine Messiah and Savior of the world, That method of Bible interpretation has effectively cut Christ out of the heart of the book of Daniel. They've cut out the greatest truth of all. Would you write that as your last line on your study guide? What left behind, left behind when it removed the 70th week is it destroyed the greatest truth of all. You know what, folks? I'm going to be very candid with you. I can only think of one being in this universe who would love to have Christ cut out of that prophecy that proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. I can think of only one being. Which would you rather have at the end? Seven years at the end or salvation at the cross? Cut out. By cutting off the 70th week of Daniel 9, left behind is left with no Savior at all. And I want to tell you, in this case, it is true. The fiction is stranger than the truth. I know I've talked very plainly here. I realize that. And I want to be quick to testify that I know that there are very sincere and devoted many, many, many such Christians who have unwittingly and unknowingly embraced a system of interpretation that did this to Daniel chapter 9. And I do not wish for a moment to condemn any of you. Not a single moment. But I want to tell you something. If you're going to build your house of prophecy on that method of interpretation, you need to know you are building that house on the sand. And when the end comes sweeping in, that house and everybody in it is going to be swept away. There are only, the only hope for you, the only hope for me, the only hope for all of us is that we build the house upon the solid rock of Christ Jesus. You can't take Jesus out of Daniel 9. Leave Jesus there where He belongs. Incontrovertible evidence that He is who He said He was. The Savior and Messiah of all this world. Let it be clear, it is time to step away from the false security. Let me say it just one more time. The theory is wrong. There is no seven-year second chance when Jesus comes. That's it. Which is why today, which is why right now, we, you and me, all of us, build on the rock of Christ Jesus. Then one day soon, 
Soon and very soon, I believe it with all my heart, one day soon, you and I will be face to face with Christ our Savior. Face to face, what will it be when with rapture we behold Him, Jesus Christ, who died for you and for me. O oh, Father, this is truly an amazing piece of prophecy. We have never seen such precision within so ancient a word. Some of us, for the very first time in our lives, are encountering an ancient manuscript agreed by all scholars written centuries before Jesus of Nazareth was born. For the first time, we are encountering evidence that declares the one who came and announced that the time was fulfilled was in fact the very anointed Messiah and Savior of the world. Oh God, you have given us bright minds, not just in a university campus like this, but across this entire nation. If this is true, and if the pieces really do fit, then we cannot walk away. We cannot walk away from this Messiah. And so, dear Father, I pray for every man, every woman in this building or watching on television just now. Please, oh God, in your own gentle way, whisper to that heart that longs to know there is security for the future. Whisper to him the quiet assurance that his life is beloved to you. Whisper to her that though the world may be caving in around her right now, there is a God who sits above the broken horizon of earth's existence. And there is nothing by chance. There is no accident that you cannot take and reshape into a promise of hope. For if this prophecy is true and Christ is the Messiah, then for the longing of that man, for the longing of that woman, He is the satisfaction, the fulfillment of all that that heart pleads for today. And so I pray for him. I pray for her. Let this moment be a beginning moment with new hope. The promised Messiah. A Savior who offers to become our forever friend. Oh God, that you cared enough in advance to teletype the word, it would be Jesus. With awe, we praise you. You appeal to our intellect, and with that intellect, we wish to embrace what is truth. And so, Lord, be with him and her, be with us all. In the lingering moments after this telecast and after this worship, don't let the thought be banished. The Messiah has come.
the Savior of the world, has made his sacrifice. Every man, woman, and child can come to him. Before soon and very soon, he comes back to this earth. Holy God, we praise you for the hope and the promise you have shined upon our pathway today through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen.